Hello and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Today we'll be in the seventh chapter of the book of Hebrews, and I'm glad you could join us as we continue our study through this book and through the Bible. Now, again, I want to encourage you as you are joining us, if this is your first time listening to Grasping Scripture and you really want to get the the full measure of what we're doing, then I ask that you would back up and start with the first chapter of Hebrews. Each chapter kind of builds in explanation on the next, so it would be helpful for you to do that. But you are welcome to join us anywhere along the way. Maybe you're studying a chapter of scripture or you just have questions or you want to know what this Bible thing is all about. Then this podcast is for you and I am glad you have joined us as we seek to truly grasp hold of scripture and its meaning and how it applies to our lives today. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer before we delve into the passages. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've blessed us with, for your word that you have given us, that we might know you and know you better, that we might submit our lives to you and your lordship. Father, we thank you for the grace and mercy we find in Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord. Now give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that understands what you have for us. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, we've made it to chapter 7 in the book of Hebrews, and here is the chapter that really focuses, well, it focuses on Jesus as they all do, but it really brings forward a character that has been mentioned just in passing multiple times already in the book of Hebrews, and that is Melchizedek. Um, now, I have over the years heard all sorts of explanations for Melchizedek. Uh, I've had people argue that he was a pre-incarnate uh, manifestation of Christ and, and all sorts of stuff. And um, I don't think that really jives with what the scripture says. And we'll discuss that why in a moment. But here again, like with many other things that we've covered in this podcast, the question first and foremost has to be, is this a salvation issue? You know, if we disagree on this point, is it one of those points that if you do not believe this, you are not saved? And the answer to that is a glaring, no, it's not one of those issues. So we can have differing opinions on this. I'm just sharing with you what I understand to be the plain statement of this text uh, without trying to embellish it too much and without, although I do bring in my own baggage and explaining, I try to do so from a fair perspective and to take into account that this is just my perspective and you may hold a different perspective. Now, on those primary issues of salvation, there's not any room for disagreement, but on secondary and tertiary issues, you know, we don't have to necessarily all hold the same view and still be in fellowship with one another as brother and sister in Christ. So let's look at chapter seven and this character Melchizedek. All right, here we go. In the first verse of chapter seven, it says this, this Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem. Now, why are we just jumping in who's talking about Melchizedek? Well, if you weren't with us, or it's been a little while since you listened to the previous episode, 
Chapter six ends with Jesus has already gone in there for us. That's into the into the holy of holies, in through the curtain, dividing um, God's inner sanctuary from the rest of the world. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So that's how six ends, kind of leaving us hanging there. Order of Melchizedek seven picks up with the explanation. So this Melchizedek in 7.1 was king of the city of Salem and also a priest of God Most High. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. Then Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice. And king of Salem means king of peace. Now, just two verses there, but they cover a lot of background. They set the stage for this larger discussion. This chapter really isn't about an Old Testament character, by the way, from Genesis chapter 14. You can go back and read this account. Um, It's not about an Old Testament character. It's using an Old Testament character and the references in Scripture to him to elaborate on who Christ is. Now, that'll make more sense as we go through the discussion. But Melchizedek, who was Melchizedek? He was king of Salem. Salem is a city that later was conquered by David and renamed Jerusalem. Jerusalem? Yeah, Salem. It was a Jebusite city or city-state at this point, and it was ruled over by a king, Melchizedek. His name literally means king of justice, Melech Zedek, king of justice. And being king over Salem, Salem is, uh, well, the word translates into Hebrew as shalom, peace, Uh, Yeah, so he was king of justice and king of peace. He was also a high priest of, wait for it, yeah, God most high. Well, who is the most high God? Yahweh, the Lord. He is God most high. And you may go, wait, wait, but this isn't the God of the Jews. Well, there weren't Jews at this point. It was Abraham. Remember Abraham called out of Ur of the Chaldees? He was, there's some evidence, uh, fulfilling a priestly role within his family at the time. And you may go, well, who was he worshiping? Well, he was with everything in him trying to worship God in a world that was full of worshiping multiple gods. And God chose him and called him forth and began to instill in him a knowledge, educate him, breed in him an awareness that there is only one true God, the God most high. And his encounter with Melchizedek, whether Melchizedek had ever heard of Yahweh or not, he was a priest of the God most high, not a God, the God most high. And so we have this this pre-Moses, pre-Jewish people encounter with this priest that is outside the priestly order of Aaron and Levi, and we'll get into that in a little bit. 
um, that Abraham encounters and Abraham acknowledges him as a priest of God and acknowledges him as someone who is superior to himself. And therefore he offers to Melchizedek a tithe, a tenth of everything he had gained. And in response, if you go back and read Genesis 14, one through what, 18 or so, you're going to see that Melchizedek accepts that tithe and gives a blessing, pronounces a blessing on Abraham. Now, for Abraham to acknowledge him and give him a tithe means Abraham acknowledged he was over him in authority. Also to Melchizedek to give him a, to give Abraham a blessing sets Melchizedek up as an authority as more powerful than Abraham. So there's an interesting dynamic going on there. It is part of that dynamic that the author of Hebrews is using to illustrate how Christ does not fit the mold of the Aaronic, the, the Jewish priesthood out of the tribe of Levi, descendants of, of Aaron, but instead he fits more in line with the order of Melchizedek, which was before there ever was a Jewish people. But he was king of justice, king of peace, high priest of the God most high. And Abraham, the progenitor of the Jewish people, of the descendants of Abraham, it's kind of in the name, um, that Abraham acknowledged him as a priest of God. That sets the stage for a much larger discussion. Now, we've just covered two verses. Let's go ahead and look at verse 3. It's kind of significant there. In verse 3, it says, There is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. Not he is the Son of God, but resembling... Now, what the author is doing is he's taking this Old Testament character, and, and the author of Hebrews isn't the only one. Uh, David does it in the Psalms in a prophetic sense, and reference, and well, Psalm 110, verse 4, and we're going to reference that Psalm multiple times in this chapter because it's part of the discussion. Um, but what you've got going on here, he's not literally saying this guy popped into existence out of nowhere and he's still walking around, okay? But he's saying in the account, in the biblical account, in a history of a people that is so entrenched in what is your lineage, who is your ancestry, who are you a descendant of, you get none of that with Melchizedek. He shows up, he's king, king of justice, king of peace priest, high priest of the God most high, and we know nothing about him. No family history, no account of, and then he died, and so-and-so ruled, none of that. We've got nothing. We just have Melchizedek. He stands alone in that. And the way he's related in that Genesis account is what the Hebrew author is latching onto and saying, you know, just like we don't have anything about his lineage or anything, therefore it's like he has no mother or father and no beginning and no end to his life. He is priest forever. In that sense, um, he is priest forever. 
but we have a high priest now, because remember, all this is explaining Jesus as our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is not of the lineage of the Levites, descended of Aaron. He is not what would fit the norm in the Jewish law structure for being a priest. And yet, he has no beginning and no end. He is high priest forever. I mean, that's kind of a big deal. And I know it's it's sort of playing with words, and it is. The author of Hebrews is drawing an example, a, a type, a figure that somewhat represents what will come to be. And he's using Melchizedek and saying, look, Jesus, you may go, well, he can't be high priest because he's not of the of the Levite clan. He's not a descendant of Aaron. He can't do it. And yet the author is giving an example going, look, there was a guy before there ever was a Jewish people back when it was just Abraham. There was a guy that Abraham acknowledged as a high priest, as, as a priest of God most high, as king of peace and king of justice, and paid a tithe to him in reverence and respect and received a blessing from him. That's what Jesus is like. Yeah, he doesn't fit the mold. He is before that. He predates that. He falls under a standard that is greater than that. And that's the case the author of Hebrews is, is making. And we're going to really spend the rest of this chapter delving into what that means and, and what it means for us as well, because it's rather significant. All right, we'll pick up in verse 4. All right, as we start in verse 4, it says, Consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now the law of Moses required that the priest, who are descendants of Levi, must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel who were also descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek, who was not a descendant of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham. And Melchizedek placed a blessing upon Abraham, the one who had already received the promise of God. And without question, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. So there in those verses, four through eight, you have this explanation about Melchizedek. The whole idea is to explain that what you have with Moses, what you have with the law, see, this is part of that larger discussion that we've covered in the preceding chapters. Christ is superior to the law. He is superior to Moses. He is superior to the priesthood under the law because he falls in to a priest in the way that Melchizedek was a priest. And so the author is explaining this relationship between, and this interaction between Melchizedek and Abraham with the tithe that was paid, the blessing that was given. When you understand that the, the Aaronic priesthood, the, the priesthood descendants of Aaron, the, the Levites, 
all of that is under the law of Moses. All of that is for the people of Israel who are the descendants of Abraham. So Abraham is greater than them. Well, here you have this priest Melchizedek, priest king, that Abraham gives a tithe to and that receives a uh, that gives a blessing to Abraham meaning he is superior to Abraham and if he's superior to Abraham that makes him superior to all of Abraham's descendants see where we're going with this it's where the author of Hebrews takes it so let's keep looking in verse 8 it says the priest who collects tithes or the priests who collects tithes are men who die. So Melchizedek is greater than they are because we are told that he lives on. He has no beginning and no end. We have no reference to parentage nor death. Um, now, in reality, we know that Melchizedek was a man and that he, he was born to somebody and he eventually died. But as the text states it, as the text relates it, there is no lineage there. He's just a character that appears. And in that way, Christ does not have that earthly lineage. He is, he is above that. Now, he does. There's, there is an ancestral breakdown at the beginning of Matthew, and, and there's one at the beginning of what, Luke as well, uh, those genealogies. But Christ existed before the incarnation, so he's preexistent. He also although was crucified on the cross, rose again. So death does not have power over him. So in that way, you know, we're using that idea of Melchizedek to illustrate who Christ is. So the priest who collects tithes are men who die. So Melchizedek is greater than they are because we are told that he lives on. In addition, we might even say that these Levites are the ones who collect the tithe, or these Levites, the ones who collect the tithe, paid a tithe to Melchizedek when their ancestor Abraham paid a tithe to him. For although Levite wasn't born yet, the seed from which he came was in Abraham's body when Melchizedek collected the tithe from him. Now, that may be a little convoluted, but what the author of Hebrews is saying there is because the ancestor of the Levites, the one who... Um, the Levites are descended from and tie all of their lineage, all of the Israelites tie their lineage back to Abraham. And Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. So that applies all the way down the line to his descendants. Through their ancestor, Abraham, a tithe was paid to Melchizedek. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. In essence, they paid a tithe to Melchizedek in the form of their ancestor paying a tithe. And that being the case, it still just backs up this idea that a priesthood in the order of Melchizedek would be a priesthood that is above and beyond anything in the Israelite society structure law. And Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek or in the way of Melchizedek. So uh, hopefully you're following that idea. The author is using this account from Genesis 14 to explain how, just like Christ is above the angels who were seen as giving the law, delivering the law for God, uh, Christ is above the law. He's above the prophet 
Moses, because he is a member of the household, not a servant of the household. He is above the priests who make the offering for atonement in the temple, the offerings for the sins, their sins and the sins of the people, because he is sinless, because he is not in the order of the human priesthood. He is in the order of Melchizedek, something above and beyond, because even Abraham acknowledged Melchizedek. Therefore, all of Abraham's descendants have to acknowledge that Melchizedek is greater than them. And that brings us to the next section of how Jesus is a priest in the line of Melchizedek. And we'll dig into that a little further. Picking up in verse 11, it says, So, if the priesthood of Levi, on which the law was based, could have achieved the perfection, now understand biblical reference to perfection, the Hebrew concept, even, even what it means here is as it's rendered in Greek into English, the idea of perfection that we find in Scripture is not perfect as in there's nothing wrong with it. There's... The idea of perfect is the idea of maturity or completeness, okay? So if the priesthood of Levi, on which the law was based, could have been achieved or could achieve the perfection, the maturity, the completeness that God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood? A priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron. Verse 12. And if the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed to permit it. For the priest we are talking about belongs to a different tribe, whose members have never served at the altar as priest. See, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, and the members of the tribe of Judah never in the life of Israel served as priest. That was not, they were forbidden from doing that. Only the tribe of Levi could do that. He goes on in 14, what I mean is our Lord, well, here he explains it. What it means is our Lord came from the tribe of Judah and Moses never mentioned priest coming from that tribe. So he says, if that's going to be the case, if Jesus is going to be our high priest, there's got to be some way that he is not bound by this requirement of the Jewish law, of the law that was given to Moses that the priest be of the tribe of Levi, descendants of Eric. How can that work? Well, it works in this way. The other priesthood that is allowed is the priesthood that predates it. The priesthood that Abraham acknowledged. The priesthood of Melchizedek. Going on in verse 15, it says, This change has been made very clear. Since a different priest, who is like Melchizedek, has appeared. Jesus became a priest not by meeting the physical requirements belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied. So in Psalm 110, verse 4, it was prophesied. What does the psalm say? It says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 18, yes, the old requirement about a priesthood 
was set aside because it was weak and useless. Mm. It was inadequate. It was a, well, are you saying that the law, that the, the priesthood established under the law is weak and useless? No, I'm not saying it. The author of Hebrews is saying it. And he's saying it based on this idea. The priests are sinners who must give sacrifice for their own sin before they give sin for the people or a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And the priests aren't priests forever because they die. But there is a priest, as Psalm 110.4 says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, a priest that does not die, a priest that happens outside the legal mandate of the law of Moses, but is still a valid priest. How does that work? Well, order of Melchizedek. There you go. So in verse 18, yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless for the law never made anything perfect. Let me restate that. Verse 19, the first sentence of it, for the law never made anything perfect, never made anything complete. The law points in a direction. The law doesn't complete the task. It is imperfect. But now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. Verse 20, this new system was established with a solemn oath. Aaron's descendants became priests without such an oath. But there was an oath regarding Jesus. For God said to him, the Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever. Ooh, now that, that is a huge statement, isn't it? You are a priest forever. Yeah, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. It's that Psalm statement. The Lord took an oath and the Lord does not break his oath. Therefore, we know that this is legit. Again, verse 20, this new system was established with a solemn oath. Aaron's descendants become priests without such an oath. But there was an oath regarding Jesus. And who was that oath from? That oath was from God. Yeah. For God said to him, the Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever. Verse 22, because of this oath. Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. So if the law was imperfect, if the law was unable to make anything perfect, we need a priest, we need a system that can make us perfect, can make us complete. So what is it? It's Jesus. Because of this oath, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God, new covenant. Think last supper, upper room. This is my blood. A new covenant. Mm -hmm. There were many priests, verse 23, there were many priests under the old system for death prevented them from remaining in office. 
But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. What's he saying? He's saying because Christ's reign as priest never ends, his work as priest is everlasting. It means that therefore he is able once and forever to save, to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. That's what he does for us. That is the offer of salvation, to come to God through Christ. And how are we able to do that? How is our faith able to be made complete? How are we able to receive salvation? Through the work of Christ as our high priest as the one who atoned for our sins and is ever, is forever our intercession with God. He lives forever to intercede with God on their, and I would say on our behalf. Mm. All right, rounding out the chapter, we pick up in 26, and it says he is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. So there's the description of the perfect high priest, of the best high priest, of the high priest that is supreme to the earthly high priest. Because the fact of the matter was, these people that the Hebrews was written to knew that the high priesthood in the temple in Jerusalem had become corrupt. It didn't even follow some of the biblical mandates for the high priest and selecting the high priest. Still had the role of high priest, still had the duties of high priest, but the high priest they had at that point was not good, shall we say. In fact, they knew that every high priest that had ever been, no matter how good or godly a man they were, they were not perfect. They were sinners. With Christ, we don't have that problem. He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless unstained by sin. He's not a priest that needs to offer sacrifices in atonement for his own sin before he can deal with our sin. He is blameless, holy, and unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. What better high priest could we have? going on in 27. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first, then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as a sacrifice for the people's sins. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness. But after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath 
and his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. See the contrast there? There is a reliance on the law, a reliance on Moses, a reliance on the high priest, the temple structure, the sacrificial system. All of that reliance is inadequate. The law makes nothing perfect. It said that in the previous text. The, the high priest are inadequate and the people knew it. And for one, the sacrifice, well, and the sacrifice they made was inadequate and the people knew it because it had to be repeated over and over again. But what the author of Hebrews is pointing out is God provided a better way. God provided something superior to the law, superior to Moses, superior to the priesthood, the temple system, the sacrifices, by providing the perfect everlasting high priest, not because of his lineage, but because an oath that God made about his son, about Jesus the Christ, God in the flesh, God with us, that he would be a perfect high priest, that he would forever be interceding for us, that his sacrifice is perfect because he is sinless. Now remember, this is all part of that larger discussion to those people of Hebraic background, of Jewish background, that were following Christ as part of the early church, but many of them were struggling with, with falling away, with reverting back to placing their faith in the law instead of in God, in trusting in the Jewish ritual to save them instead of Christ. And all of this is that discussion to say, look, Christ is superior to all of that. Christ is above and beyond all of that. So why would you fall back into that? Why would you settle for an inadequate high priest and an inadequate sacrifice and an inadequate law and a prophet that pales in comparison to Jesus when you have Jesus who is supreme to all of this? And he is supreme to all of it. The son has been made the perfect high priest forever. There it is. In Christ Jesus, we have a perfect high priest that will be our high priest before God forever. Who has atoned for our sins completely and forever who intercedes before God on our behalf completely and forever. Don't settle for anything less. Christ is supreme. So place your faith in him and cling to that faith. Cling to him because he's everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have provided a way for us to be made right with you. Not just in a moment, not just for a period of time, but for all of eternity. Father, we thank you that you came and dwelt among us in Christ. We thank you 
that Christ is now our perfect high priest forever. We thank you that he intercedes for us, that we have been made right with you through his work on our behalf, not because we earned it, not because we have done the right things to get it, but because you loved us and you provided a way of salvation in Christ. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your grace poured out for us. Help us to cling to Jesus. Help us to stay rooted in him, to be made perfect, complete in him. Lord, we thank you for the salvation that you have given us. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.